Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher here at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you to Daniel chapter 1. Generally speaking, my intention for every episode of Into the Word is to read and explain one full chapter of the Bible in 15 minutes or less. On days like today, when we're starting a new book of the Bible, we'll give ourselves a few extra minutes to cover some basic introduction and orientation. The book of Daniel takes place during a time of massive social and geopolitical upheaval. The land of Israel in the ancient world occupied a similarly unfortunate position, geopolitically speaking, as the country of Poland did in the 20th century. I had a a friend, a congregant in one of my first churches, who had grown up in Poland. And as a result of two world wars, he had held citizenship in three different countries despite never having left his village. His little village had belonged variously to Poland, Germany, and the USSR as a result of the political upheavals of the 20th century. Well, Poland exists between those two competing powers, and so it was with the nation of Israel in the ancient world. There was the old power of Egypt to Israel's south and west, and there were the emerging powers of Mesopotamia in Assyria and later Babylon, and Israel was caught between them. And as a result of this, the covenant people were in a very precarious position, which, of course, was part and parcel of God's sovereign plan for them. God wanted Israel to rely on him and to trust in him and not in foreign allegiances. But as the story goes, Israel was very slow to learn that lesson. The northern kingdom of Israel fell into idolatry and became estranged from the Lord and fell victim to a series of onslaughts and invasions from the Assyrian Empire until finally only the walled city of Samaria remained intact. All of northern Israel had been lost. Her tribes scattered to the wind except for a 20-acre compound on the hill of Samaria surrounded by 30-foot thick walls. 20 acres. That was the kingdom ruled over by Hosea. For three years, that little mountain fortress held out against the Assyrians. King Shalmaneser V died during the siege of Samaria, but then it was taken up and completed by Sargon II. And the city fell to him and was utterly destroyed by him in 722 BC. He boasts about that in his annals, saying, In the first year of my reign, I besieged and conquered Samaria. I led away into captivity 27,290 people who lived there. That was the end of the northern kingdom. Now, many faithful individuals from the northern kingdom had migrated down into the south, into Judah, over the course of their history. So, The ten tribes were not entirely lost, but nevertheless, the total destruction and exile of the northern kingdom as a political entity was a huge blow to the people of God. And the the prophets in the Bible pointed to that as a warning. If God is willing to punish those ten tribes for idolatry and lack of faith, 
Why would he not be willing to punish you, they ask, again and again. Jeremiah, a prophet in the southern kingdom, with whom, by the way, Daniel was obviously familiar, Jeremiah saw that his people in the southern kingdom were trusting in the fact that they had the temple. The temple was in the southern kingdom. They were treating the temple of God like a good luck charm. Surely God would never allow his house to be destroyed, they said. In Jeremiah 7, verse 4, he warns them, Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Do you think that God will spare you because you've rubbed up against the stones of the temple, he asks? That is superstition and nonsense. That is not how God works. God looks at the heart. And when he looks at your heart, all he sees is idolatry and compromise. That's what the prophets are saying. But the people weren't listening. Even after God rescued them from the Assyrians in the days of Sennacherib, the son of Sargon II, Sennacherib had marched upon Judah and had subdued the entire country, except for two fortified cities, Lachish and Jerusalem. It looked for all the world as though Judah would suffer the exact same fate as Israel. But then, in one of the greatest mysteries in ancient history, Sennacherib suddenly and quickly withdrew. He went back to Nineveh, where he was assassinated by his sons. And very shortly thereafter, his empire was defeated and destroyed by an alliance of competing powers. And so, history wonders, what in the world happened to Sennacherib at the gates of Jerusalem? Well, the Bible tells us that an angel of the Lord went out and killed 185,000 of Sennacherib's soldiers. Mass Graves have been found from the time of the Assyrian invasion, suggesting that Sennacherib left Judah in a hurry, in a panic, barely even burying the dead. Now, you would, you would think that a dramatic rescue like that would finally get the attention of the Jewish people. They would finally figure out that Egypt is not their hope, right? These false alliances are not their hope. God is their hope and salvation. You would think they would get that but they didn't. They made further foolish alliances. They fell back into idolatry. The Babylonians became one of the new powers. They became really the only sole superpower in the region following the collapse of the Assyrians. And they punished Judah for making an alliance with Egypt by taking a group of young nobles into captivity in 605 BC. And that's where we pick up the story of Daniel. Daniel was one of those young nobles. Jewish tradition holds that he was actually a descendant of King Hezekiah. He was a royal son of Israel. He was part of this crop of young nobles that went to Babylon 19 years before the mass deportation of Jews in 586 BC following the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. But by that time, Daniel had become a very important man in the Babylonian government. And that brings us to one of the major themes of this book. Despite all appearances to the contrary, God really is in charge. And he is working everything out for his glory and for the salvation and sanctification of his people. Now, as for the structure of the book of Daniel, Daniel has two definite parts. They're very obvious to you. The first six chapters are historical, 
and they contain stories of how Daniel and his friends were faithful to, to God in a, in a foreign and occasionally quite hostile land. Then the last six chapters contain a series of dreams wherein God lays out his program and his plan for the entirety of world history right up to the dawning of the Messianic age. God is in control of the present, and God has a plan for the future. That is the great overarching theme of the book of Daniel. Let's begin reading this section of God's word now, starting at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now just pause there. That's on his way back from defeating the Egyptians. Okay, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, with youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Now, these seven verses take us right into the heart of the action. They introduce us to all the main characters. And they establish for us the central tension of the narrative. Nebuchadnezzar has just defeated Egypt at the Battle of Carchemish. Judah had conspired to align herself with Egypt, and now she stands exposed before the new superpower in the region. Babylon is on the rise. Judah is hanging on by a thread. Nebuchadnezzar cows Judah with a show of force and further asserts her dominance by raiding the temple and taking several young noblemen into captivity. The picture is very clear. Babylon is strong and Judah is weak. But the surprise that will be unfolded over the course of the story is that God remains very much in charge. Look at verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. This is not a random tragedy. This is not a, this is not a random political setback. This is all part of of the providence of God. God raises up Babylon to chasten, test, refine, and preserve a remnant of his people. Despite all appearances to the contrary, God is large and in charge. Now, as for the young men, they will be trained up for service as advisors in the king's court. Now, they're under the charge of the eunuch, a eunuch who's referred to as the chief of the eunuchs, which means that in all likelihood, Daniel and his friends were made eunuchs. They were emasculated. Now, as natives of the region, now under the control of the Babylonians, these men would be raised up to provide expert 
counsel to the king. They'll be taught the language, the culture, and the literature of their host nation so that they can serve in this capacity or so that they might be sent back to Judah to serve as governors and ambassadors of Babylon. And so as part of this education, they are given new names, new food, and new wine to drink. And this leads us to the first crisis in the narrative. In verse 8, the Bible says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. The king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, the first question we have to ask to understand this story, this crisis narrative, is why did Daniel not want to eat the king's food? Why did he draw the line here, right? He, he doesn't resist his new name, despite the fact that all of their new names were explicitly pagan in origin and meaning. Daniel's new name, Belteshazzar, means may God protect his life. Azariah's new name means a servant of Nabu. And Hananiah and Mishael are given new names related to the Babylonian god Marduk. So why didn't they resist that? And why didn't they protest the curriculum? The Hebrew text says explicitly that they were educated in Chaldean learning and literature. The Chaldeans were the ruling tribe of the Babylonians, and they were particularly associated with the art of divination. Respected Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman III writes that Daniel clearly would have been trained in the arts of divination through such means as interpreting unusual terrestrial and celestial phenomena, astrology, the examination of sheep livers, and so forth. But they don't protest that, right? That's not where they drew the line. They drew the line at the point of food, at the point of diet. Why is that? Well, it sometimes suggested that Daniel wanted to eat kosher and observe the Old Testament dietary laws, but these laws say nothing about wine. So why does Daniel refuse the king's wine? It is sometimes said that Daniel was perhaps worried about the fact that the king's food 
would have been offered to pagan idols. But then why eat the vegetables, right? Those two would have been sacrificed to idols. Some scholars feel that Daniel did not want his success to be attributed to the generosity of Nebuchadnezzar. Like Abraham refusing to take spoil from the king of Sodom, so Daniel refuses to be nourished by the king of Babylon. He will eat vegetables. And when the king notices that Daniel and his friends far surpass all the other captive noblemen from all the other countries he has conquered, Daniel and his friends will know the truth. It is God who makes them prosper. God is protecting and prospering his people quite apart from the gifts and generosity of the king. That seems to be the point of the story. And what an incredible story this is. These are teenagers. These are 15, 16, 17-year-old kids who are being forcibly immersed in the culture of their enemy. And yet, they draw a line. They say, this far and no further. What an example for teenage kids today, right? I will take your class on atheistic, materialistic evolution, and I will get an A. I will read the literature, acquire the languages, and master the sciences, but I will not be owned by you. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what's going on here. This is not a weight loss strategy for crying out loud. This is a story about how young people kept their hearts for the Lord in a foreign and hostile land. This is a story about the power and providence of God. This is a story about how God raises up nations and casts them down all in pursuit of his glory and our everlasting good. This is a story for the ages, and for our age in particular. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on our Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into your search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.